Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined, as always, by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in lovely San Diego with Dan Humiston producing. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm good, Larry. Fired up to, uh, to listen to some of the songs we're going to hear today and talk about what's happening in the industry. Yeah, it's, it's a great day on both fronts. So before we uh, talk too much, let's dive right into it. We're playing today uh, from The Grateful Dead, September 26, 1980 at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. This was one of the Reckoning slash Deadhead shows with a acoustic set followed by two electric. We'll talk more on the backside. Here's the opener. great set of shows. Um, I was not at any of them, unfortunately. Uh, but we're going to be focusing today from the acoustical set. To Lay Me Down is a great tune to start with. They started with it that night. And uh, the fun little uh, fact about To Lay Me Down, if you heard the crowd give a little roar at the beginning, it was because the first time they had played it in 311 shows dating back to October 19th, 1974, which at first shocked me because that seemed like a low number of shows until I remembered that they played no shows in 75. So uh, that made the number seem a little more uh, in line. But um, I've always loved that tune, Rob, and it's such a beautiful tune when they play it acoustic. Yeah, I love that song as well. I'll tell you, the, the, lyrically, it's a tough song to sing. You know, there's times that uh, Garcia has a little, little tougher time hitting some of those notes, and it's, uh, it, it caused him to really show his full range, and sometimes he gets it and sometimes he doesn't. And I think even in that clip, you know, we, we heard him struggle a little bit on that. But, uh, but this whole run, there was a lot of breakouts, and that's the cool thing about when you step out of your comfort zone of playing electric and start playing acoustic, because you have to think about other material that works um, as an acoustic set rather than as an electric set. And some things you can transfer you know, relatively easily, and, and some you can't. So for them to be able to do this is just a, a much different style than what they are used to. But um, I love it. You know, I loved hearing all those uh, all those shows, and I loved what came out between you know Reckoning and Dead Set. Yeah, it, it's it was really the first live Dead that I got into when I first started listening to them because my good buddy Mike was very into it and playing it all the time. And some of the songs we're going to be listening to here in a few more minutes are going to be tunes that. Uh, uh, I remember listening to as far back as uh, the summer of 1981, uh, which would have been right after this album came out. And uh, the joy was eventually seeing some, though not all of them, in concert. Um, although it's interesting how some of these transfer over from acoustic to, to electric and back again. Uh, and we will dive more into this show in a few minutes, so please stick around for that because it's going to be great. However, we really need to focus, I think, for a minute on marijuana news. You know, in terms of news stories that I had kind of lined up for us to talk about today... You know, we still have the, 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 the downward one about marijuana companies laying off hundreds of workers. But significantly, there are at least two uh, news stories that I think are very, very positive and favorable for the cannabis industry. And um, it's important that we get started with that. And this one was a last minute surprise coming from the uh, Illinois uh, Appellate Court 3rd District. And Rob, tell me what you think about this. The Appellate Court held that the smell of any burnt cannabis without any corroborating factors is not enough to establish probable cause to search the vehicle. And therefore, the appellate court saying the trial court did not err in granting the defendant's motion to suppress. This is a game changer. What do you think? I think it's a game changer if law enforcement actually adheres to it. You know, I think you and I are both very suspect that uh, the police are not going to say, hey, I smell weed and, you know, give me permission to search your car. The second you give permission is the second that, you know, it doesn't matter if there's probable cause or not, even if they use false pretense in doing so. But, you know, if you were to say, no, you can't search my car and you're adamant about saying, no, you can't do it because of the smell of cannabis or the, uh, the smell of, you know, burnt or unburned cannabis, 
Look, I mean, that's something that's uh, like here's where body cams come in. Here's where cams from from citizens come in. But, uh, you know, for everyone listening out there, never give probable cause. If a cop asks, you've been drinking, the answer is no. I don't care how much you had to drink. The answer is no. Let them figure out their probable cause. If you've been smoking joints for the last four days in, in your car and you're high as can be and they go, have you been smoking weed? The answer is no. You know, the police officers aren't there to, um, to determine whether or not you're guilty. That's for a court of law. Uh, police officers are there to see whether or not they can get a charge on you. So, you know, the less you say, the better. Uh, and, you know, denying is everything. Anyone tells you you can't lie to a cop, look, I promise you, they're going to lie to you. So, you know, not to be cynical about the police out there, but I can tell you right now that you know, I've had multiple experiences where police officers have absolutely looked at me in the face and lied uh, while, you know, going through an interrogation. So, you know, for them to say you can't, you can't do that. So, look, I love the idea that, that courts are now holding this. And I love the idea that... Um, that, you know, you have to establish probable cause in other ways, which, you know, there, there's plenty that, that law enforcement can still find. But, you know, for those people out there that, you know, get a charge based on uh, on a police officer saying it started off with, you know, the smell of weed and they refuse the search, I, I hope they all go free. And I hope the law enforcement, you know, stops lying about their, uh, their rationale for searching people's vehicles. Because, I mean, you want to talk about the easiest possible way in the world to establish probable cause. This is like, this is an instant out for a cop. Oh, I smelled weed. You know, we had, we had probable cause. You know, like, okay, well, who's going to say you did or didn't smell weed? Who's the more credible witness? Is always the police officer against the defendant. And whatever they found after that was technically admissible. And as you and I know in the law, you know, if you find something after not having probable cause, it's referred to as the fruit of the poisonous tree. So, you know, maybe, maybe explain to our listeners, you know, kind of what that means and why this is so important. Um, I will. And that's a great summary. And I have to, because of that, give a shout out uh, to a guy that we all know, uh, Michigan attorney Matt Abel, uh, who's been the president of Michigan Normal Forever and uh, an early player in the uh legal cannabis industry. One of the first guys I ever met out in Seattle, right when I was meeting Jim Marty too. And I'll never forget Matt Abel after sitting around with me and smoking a joint, got up to give his presentation and walked right up to the microphone and like a preacher in a church yelled out, okay, everybody stand up and repeat after me. No, just say no. When the cop pulls you over, no. When the cop asks you a question, no. Your answer is always no. Does everybody understand? And they all yelled no. And he said, good. And then he got up and he gave his presentation on commercial cannabis and whatever he was talking about. But it was a great message. And I, I took that and uh, um, uh, transitioned it enough that I could take it home to my boys when they were getting to an age where they and their buddies were starting to go out and potentially get in situations. And it paid off once for one of my sons who told the cop, no, no, no. And the cop said, we're going to get a dog. And he said, I don't care. The answer is no. And the cop never caught the dog. They called the bluff. And Ultimately, they walked away. Um, I think not unlike your incident, Rob, where uh, when you call the cops bluff, uh, he actually at that point backed down too. But it's always a game of gotcha, right? We've always known that. Uh, cops won't give a Miranda warning. And if you're not smart enough to know what a Miranda warning is, you might not even know that your rights have been violated. And, and I think I never like to uh, you know, spread anybody in, in with one big brush. And we all say all the time, well, there's tons of great cops. And you know, for every bad cop, there's five great cops. And, and this is not meant in any way to disparage law enforcement as a whole. It's meant to disparage those people in law enforcement who have decided that the rules don't apply to them and that uh, teenagers and high school kids are easy pickings. And once we pull them over for shooting off fireworks in a pouring rainstorm somewhere, we can then stick our nose in the car and smell the marijuana. Now they can't do that anymore. Yeah, and look, you're, you're, you're a bit kinder to law enforcement than I. You know, I, I think that uh, when it comes to pulling people over, the only time a cop is your friend is if you happen to know them personally. Other than that, you know, I'm suspect as to the motivation of every police officer that pulls you over or that you come in contact with. I don't think that, you know, I think your likelihood of ending up in prison or in jail is significantly higher every single time you interact with a police officer. So in, in that case, you know, look, I advise everyone to say no as well. I advise everyone to, to um, exercise their constitutional rights, but I also exercise caution because, you know, what I can say is, is easy for me to do versus, you know, there's other people that uh, don't have the same um, abilities that, you know, police officers are going to run roughshod over them. You give them advice to, to exercise their constitutional rights and only to find out that, you know, they go, hey, those rules don't apply to me for whatever reason, you know, either based on, on economic um, stratification or based on race or ethnicity. There's a lot of times I don't think that, you know, other people have the same ability to say no or stand up to a police officer that I have being both an attorney and being, you know, one of privilege. So it's, it, it's a terribly unfair system. What I will say is that, you know, in my case, I, I did not back the cop off, Larry. You know, the, the officer 
pulled me over and told me he smelled alcohol in the car. So very similar to saying he smelled uh, cannabis. I told him there's absolutely no way he could. I've been sober for over eight weeks and studying for the bar exam. And he said, no, no, I smell it. And I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. And we got into a, a yes, no sort of argument until finally he's like, well, would you be willing to back it up and take a breathalyzer? I said, under one condition, I'll get, take a breathalyzer if you give me a, a true apology, a real apology for lying to me about the fact that you're saying you smell alcohol when there's absolutely not a chance in the world you do. He's like, fine, deal. I blew a 0.0 and he looks at me and goes, good luck on your bar exam. I go, what about the apology? Just have a good night. Would refuse to apologize. You know, and, and by the way, I was pulled over for a bullshit reason to start with of a guy that told me I swerved in a road that had a natural kink in the uh, center line where you have to swerve right there. And they sit there on Saturday nights on, uh, on Federal Boulevard in uh, Denver and, and just nail person after person after person about three blocks away from a, from a music venue and just get them where they say they swerved. I mean, I, I, I almost went out there with a camera just to like record how many times they use this excuse that we pulled over for swerving on a road that has a natural kink. So, you know, it, it, again, even, even dead stone cold sober and even knowing my rights as I did and even being at a point where like the reason I was sober is because I was trying to make sure I could pass the bar exam, you know, they still weren't going to be honest to me. And they still weren't going to be honest to me even after I was honest to them. So, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't take the same view that you do that there's a lot of good ones out there. I think there's a lot of people that go into the force with the expectation that they're going to try to do something terrific for the community, only to find out that once they get in there, they get, um, you know, their, their, their basis for being a police officer gets perverted with the job, right? And it's, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of them had every great intention when they went in, only to find out they got a lot of pressure from other guys to act a certain way or toe a line or know that they've got, you know, a, a police officer's um, uh, union that supports them. And no matter what their behavior is, they feel that they are largely above the law. And I think that's where, you know, we, we need the wholesale overhaul in, in the criminal justice system. But every time we get an incremental change like this, every time we get something where uh, a judge finds in favor of the new rules of saying, okay, you can no longer use the smell of uh, cannabis or, you know, the, the smell of burnt cannabis, as probable cause, it's one more chance that we have as citizens to fight back against that tyranny. So, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled about this result. I think those are good points. And, and one other thing I did want to say about that is a lot of times, you know, it's easy for us to slam the courts as well, especially when it comes to marijuana related issues, because the sense is that they always don't know what they're doing and they're going to be very biased against it. But in this case, what I like is that both the trial court and the appellate court were willing to recognize that the decision that they were making flew in the face of established law in Illinois, but they were willing to acknowledge the changing landscape of the, of the legality of marijuana in Illinois. And they said it's entirely feasible that somebody could have legally transported marijuana in their vehicle. The smell is there. You smell it later. Since there's a legal use for them to be having it now, which may not have existed before, what may have been okay at one time, arguably, is now definitely no longer okay. And I, you know, I have to respect the fact that uh, the, the, the courts at both levels there uh, were willing to acknowledge that reality and, and, and make a ruling that took those into account. Yeah, then you have to ask yourself the question of, you know, what's next? Because realistically, that same issue exists with drug testing. Right. I mean, you can smoke a joint and, and a week later still test positive for cannabis and you haven't been inebriated in any way for that entire week in the intervening time. Right. So all of a sudden you take a drug test and that drug test comes up or you're above you know, 99 nanograms or whatever the, the limitation is, whatever the you know, company you work for says it is. And you're fired for your job for something you did in your free time a week previously where they say, you know, it still doesn't count. And it's very, very similar to, you know, saying, yes, you know, someone transported cannabis legally in my car a week ago and, you know, you're still smelling the residual effect. There's really not much difference there. So what do you think? Do you think we're going to start seeing a change in policy on the drug testing side as well? Well, I think we are, and that's a great point and a great lead into our next story. And for me, I've always uh, kind of capsulated this whole discussion and sum it up by saying it's really presence versus impairment, right? And, and you've, and you've uh, made the argument perfectly. The fact that I smoked marijuana a week ago and it still shows up in a test has nothing to do with the fact as to whether I'm currently impaired. And, and we need people to recognize that. And lo and behold, here comes California. And the only surprise in this story is that they're the seventh state to protect workers who smoke marijuana while off the clock. And basically, that's what they're saying here, that, you know, if, uh, if an employer is going to test, then if an employee tells him, look, I got high last Tuesday or last Saturday or last whenever, um, that that's no, you know, if, in other words, if the employee can give a legal basis for having smoked marijuana during non-work hours, 
they can't use that test anymore um, as a basis to fire employees. Now, there are definitely lots of companies that do this and do this you know, indiscriminately, and they just do it because their insurance companies have told them it's cheaper to fire these people than it is to pay off a lawsuit if somebody gets injured or killed and they can show that one of your employees had tested positive for marijuana, right? But it throws this whole idea of impairment out the window. It puts employers in a terrible position about what to do. So at least this is a good start in the right direction, Rob, but I will never... I, as I say, I'll never forget, I can't bring the name of the case to my forehead at the moment, but it's the Arizona case from about 10 years ago where a guy got ticketed for speeding and his team put into evidence the fact that the um, the metabolites in THC in your system start out as hydroxy, meaning they produce a psychedelic effect, which is the where, where the intoxication level comes in. But within two to three hours after smoking, that begins to break down. And soon thereafter, the metabolites have become carboxy and they no longer have uh, active uh, THC or psychedelic um, ingredients in them. But so the, the, the Arizona Supreme Court in that case recognized this guy's defense. He had been pulled over for DUI for speeding and admitted to smoking a joint a few nights before. And they, they got him for uh, driving under the influence. And the court said it's not he wasn't under the influence. We know scientifically. The only thing about that that surprised me is that was 10 years ago. And we don't see very many employers or law enforcement employing that very relatively simple test. It does require a blood draw. But, you know, maybe at some point people will say draw my blood and I can prove right now. Be nice if we don't have to do that. And maybe someday some techno nerd somewhere will invent something where they can just look in your eye and get that reading. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, we know that the technology exists and we really don't have to. It, it doesn't even have to be a game. But until that technology comes along, what California is doing is the right thing to do. Good, good luck in telling the libertarian side of this country that, you know, go ahead and draw my blood. You know, the same guys won't, you know, take a jab for uh, for COVID. You're going to tell me they're going to, you know, say yes to a blood test and not say that's just a massive violation of their rights. I mean, look, I, I'm not even one of those people. No one's taking my blood. Uh, there's no way that I'm going to prove that, you know, I'm, I'm innocent by saying that the fact that you can even get people to be forced to take a blood test in this country for either a DUI as an intoxicant for alcohol or for cannabis, to me, is just so completely and totally absurd. Uh, so yeah, there needs to be a better test for it. And there needs to be a test that shows that impairment doesn't exist at that time. Um, but you know, as I said, for a long time, cannabis, the smell of cannabis, the, 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 you know, the DUI side of cannabis was always a Trojan horse to get people for other crimes. It had nothing to do with the cannabis. It was a great way to actually go in there and try to figure out something else that they'd done to search a car, to find other things that they'd say, okay, this is worse, whether it was a firearms violation or a parole violation or something else, like whatever it was. It was just a great backdoor way for law enforcement to say, okay, we are now going to try to you know, nail you for whatever we possibly can under the false pretense of, of we think we might have smelled cannabis. So the, the faster we can get rid of that, uh, the better off as, as citizens we are so we don't live in a police state dominated by people that can make up bullshit reasons to, uh, to infringe on your rights. And that's how I really feel. <laughs> and that's good. I, we, we're, Rob, we're nothing if not truthful on this show, right? So, um, you know, you have to say how you really feel. And I, I really agree with a lot of that. And I'm certainly not advocating, uh, you know, the government's right to draw your blood. I am, though, you know, suggesting uh, that if, you know, if, if you want to play fair, look, if you're an employer and there, and there is a way to do it, you know, if you have valuable employees, maybe an employee is willing to do it to prove their innocence. Maybe they're not. And I'm not saying they should, but we know the technology exists. And so with that technology, it's really a shame that it takes, you know, to have to, that it takes the legislature to have to come in and pass these kind of rules uh, to protect something that we know should be protected. But again, the flip side of it is that they've given the protection. And so I applaud California for doing it and, um, you know, would hope that more states would follow through on that. Yeah. Or you can go to the alternative side, which is if you don't catch me smoking a joint or eating an edible or doing a bong hit, fuck off. Yeah, leave me alone. So it's, <laughs> well, uh, I've soapboxed enough on this one. Uh, I'm sure there's some other things we can discuss that are more interesting to our listeners than, you know, how I feel about uh, the way law enforcement treats cannabis uh, violators or users, I should say, not violence. Just, but, uh, but I know you've got some other fun things lined up. Uh, yes. And as we spin out of this and go back to the music again, let's just not forget the primary thing that a court of law in the state of Illinois has ruled that a the smell of burnt cannabis or even raw cannabis in your car by itself does not give probable cause to search your car. Learn that. Know that. Those are your rights, although not to be 
picayunish about this, but this is not the Illinois Supreme Court that's ruling. It's only the Illinois Third District Appellate Court. So I imagine it's only binding law if you're uh, uh, operating within the Third District of the state of Illinois. I don't know that it has statewide application. However, at least if it's out there and you're in a different district as an attorney, it gives you a case in Illinois that you can cite to for approval and hope the judges in your district are as equally as enlightened as they are down in the Third District. Right on. And I think that lets us uh, get back on the road again, huh? Absolutely. Very, oh, very clever. Yeah, Even Dan liked that one. Go ahead, Dan. Let's listen to this one. Once again, a breakout for the Grateful Dead on this night. Uh, we didn't hear the beginning of the song, but if you listen to that part of it, there's wild applause. This was the first time played since December 1st, 1966. That's 1,131 shows. And Rob, I do believe that that's even greater than the stretch of Fish not playing Olivia's Pool prior to uh, Alpine in uh, uh, 2019. So um, not that there's competition or anything, but to pull a song back out after 1,000 plus shows um, and, and a song that really didn't have a lot of playing time even then and uh, really came on more in the future. But uh, I love that song. It's a great tune. It is a great tune, and it's a great breakout, and it's a perfect song to play acoustically. So I think, you know, that became a staple of their acoustic set uh, as they went forward, and I think Bobby loved to sing it. But uh, it's one of those songs that, like, you know, as you pointed out in the pre-show, is a tune that was, like, even predating the Grateful Dead and, you know, predating the Warlocks. This is going back to Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, which is, you know, 1964, 1965. And, you know, as you said, it was also popularized by, uh, by the great John Sebastian. So, you know, there's there's a lot of history to this tune, especially kind of in the folky circles. Absolutely. I guess the original credit goes to uh, Mr. Will Shade of the Memphis Jug Band back in the day. But, you know, even after the dead brought it back, it turns out they only played it about 40 times from 81 to 84, mostly electric at that point. Um, and then they just kind of dropped it, which is too bad. But uh, that song and the races on were always two of my favorite tunes off of Reckoning. And when my buddy Mike would play it for us while we were driving around the back roads of Wisconsin on our nights off from working at summer camp, uh, we would listen to that album a lot. And this was always a good one on the road again. Love it. Um, and uh, the fans did, too. Well, I think a lot of those songs, both of those songs, both those songs are like comical songs, right? As is Monkey and the Engineer. I think a lot of the acoustic songs they played had an element of humor to them that uh, that made those songs really fun. So that's you know one of the things I always liked about it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, as long as we're on music, and, and let's just keep rolling along for a minute, those kind of songs. Um, I would say, well, those kind of songs on the road again and races on like we've been talking about, not to lay me down. But then, you know, all of a sudden, boom, they're right back into birdsong. And, and we're going to hear birdsong right now uh, played acoustically 40 years ago, uh, 42 years ago today. Go ahead, Dan. Oh. 
one of my favorites. <clears throat> I always think for a late first set, I would say that's always you know, the one that would get the spaciest and sort of get the coolest that you know, you'd get as a, a fifth or sixth song first set. But acoustic is fantastic. And you know, if you think about the, the history of that song, it was broken out at the Porchester Capitol Theater in February of 1971. But you know, more importantly, it, it's dedicated to, to Janis Joplin, as, as Robert Hunter pointed out in the liner notes of Box of Rain, the, uh, the lyrics book. And you have to think that Janice only passed away in October of 1970. So within four months of, uh, of her passing, he'd already written you know, lyrics to a song that would end up being a, a staple in the Grateful Dead's repertoire throughout the rest of their career of just a, a beautiful memoir or memory of, um, of one of their you know, closest friends as an artist and you know, Pigpen's longtime girlfriend you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. Absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's certainly uh, one of Robert Hunter's more inspired pieces, I think. And what I really love about this, you know, like we were saying before, this is a great tune to hear them play acoustically. Like you said, my whole life of a deadhead, well, 13 years when I was 14 years when I was actually going to the shows when Jerry was around. Birdsong was was such an important first set song. It, it was a, a chance, you know, to really start to kind of get a little bit of that that space going in your brain and and really, you know, get into the whole flow, the the oneness of the of the dead show where everybody's just kind of moving together. And it's it's a hypnotic song. It really, you know, when Jerry's playing it electric, the the jam in the middle of it is just. Uh, this was a song where I definitely had my share of, as the fish kids would call it, type two jams, uh, where somewhere out in the middle of everything and all of a sudden they'd swing back around and say, I'll show you, you know, snow and rain. And you're like, damn, yeah, that's what they were playing. But, uh, you know, to hear them play it acoustic is great. You know, it really lets them show off their voices. And um, it, it's, it's such a beautiful song to hear played in that fashion. Yeah, I always think it's the, it's the first set Dark Star. You know, it's the one place in the first set where they really, really go out into uh, exploration territory they, the way they would on, let's say, a playing in the band or, um, or a Dark Star in the second set. But, you know, there weren't too many places to do that in the first set. Maybe like, you know, Cassidy Jam once in a while would go, you know, a little bit out there. But Birdsong was the one where you could say, okay, this could go for 13 to 15 minutes and just go, you know, sort of outer space territory for a bit. And it would, you know, every time. And it, and it you know, and I, and I joke about the, the type two jams only because we just never gave, gave a name to it. But, you know, I mean, it, it was definitely one of those tunes where, you know, if you were in the right frame of mind, you knew it was going to happen. You know, it's like when you get to the dentist's office, he says, I'm going to knock you out. And you sit there and say, how long can I stay awake? You know, you're going to eventually fall asleep. Same thing with birdsong. You know, if you just give yourself over to the song at some point, you're lost in it. And, you know, Jerry's playing of it electric is, is so melodic and, and amazing and just sucks you in. Uh, and, and the acoustic is great, too. So it's a great show. We still have a couple more uh, tracks to go from this. Uh, one, a standard and one probably the greatest tune of all time, not to give it away. Um, but back to marijuana news for a minute. Tell me what you make of this, Rob. Uh, governor Newsom, your, your governor in your home state, has signed a bill uh, allowing California to, I assume, California businesses to start creating interstate commerce pacts. Now, this is both fascinating and questionable because right now this would violate federal law in a pretty blatant way if people were going to go across state lines. But is California like beginning to lay the groundwork to take over the marijuana world here when it all goes legal by by trying to start reaching outside of the state in a more formal way? You know, it's a great question. And, you know, look, I always believed in stare decisis and believed in precedent, you know, until recently. I always thought the Supreme Court would largely stick with uh, with things that are settled law. And in this case, you know, you're going back to Gonzales v. Reich and Gonzales v. Reich going back to, to you know, Willard v. Filburn. Before it, um, as far as you know, the rationale for for not allowing to cross state lines. But what's interesting is that Clarence Thomas has come out recently and said that if that you know same case, if Gonzalez Gonzalez v. Reich came in front of him today, very likely he would have decided otherwise, uh, simply based on the trajectory of, of cannabis um, incremental change from a state by state basis. So, do I think that right now what California is doing is is technically illegal? Maybe, but you know that would take an enforcement action to actually challenge it. And I think that if it went back up through the courts, I think they'd have a very, very tough time with the the composition of the court. That's a very you know kind of libertarian federalist uh, court in many ways, at least on issues they want to be. Uh, that would come back out and say no. That the the utility of what we decided back in two thousand and one or two thousand, I can't remember the, the date of that, is now waned. There's there's no rationale you know to do it. So. The other thing about this is you've got to read the rule. You've got to read the um, what Newsom passed, and it's still subject to a change in federal law. So you know they're creating these interstate compacts. They're starting it off with you know California trading with New Jersey. 
um, you know, symbolically it sounds great, but I'm actually waiting for someone right now just to come in and, and just take a leap of faith and decide, you know, we're just going to go for it and let's see if the feds are going to do anything about it, especially if it's a contiguous state, you know, like Oregon trading with Washington or California trading with Nevada or Arizona or anywhere in the Northeast. I mean, technically there isn't a state from, uh, you know, Delaware or I should say now from Virginia North. Uh, along the eastern seaboard that doesn't have, you know, legalized cannabis, at least, you know, at the medical level. So can you not start moving, you know, cannabis there if they created interstate compacts? Are you really going to get the feds coming in and saying this is an enforcement priority? I actually am a firm believer that if someone were to do that right now or if the states were to do that, I don't think they would say a thing. I, I think that, you know, the, the feds would look at it and go, eh, you know, we're, we're already not enforcing a policy as long as you're staying within the confines of your state laws and it's a well established and, and well-regulated uh, industry, then we're going to be hands-off. Okay, well, prime example would be Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey that have all created very, very similar legislation. So in those three states, if they were to say we're going to create you know, an interstate compact between these you know, three states, I would think that it would be very unlikely to see uh, any sort of prosecution. I wouldn't technically call it illegal. I would just call it the fact that the Supreme Court has ruled in this using very, very shaky ground on the aggregate effect test of... Um, intrastate commerce affecting interstate commerce. So again, very technical issue. All of us sort of legal scholars in cannabis know about it, but you know, I'm ready to poke the bear. I'm ready for someone to try it out. Well, I am too, but I have to start off by saying, you know, as impressive as his uh, frame of mind might be on this, it's always difficult to give too much credit to Clarence Thomas for anything. But I, I will say this about what he, what he said, just like we gave credit to the Illinois third district for recognizing the, the changing landscape of legal marijuana, at least, you know, Thomas is doing the same thing, and he's now recognizing that the landscape has changed such that, you know, we really can't turn the clock back. If only he were feeling that way about gay marriage or some other issues as well. But, you know, at least he settled on marijuana as one um, where although we would never know what he's really going to do until he does it. But it, it sounds like that it could give people a little bit of comfort now. I like your idea. You know, my first question is, where's the D'Angelo brothers when you need them, right? Because wasn't this what they were always good at, leading the way in terms of... <laughs> exactly. The most cavalier guys in cannabis history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a great question. And, and they just say, you know, just come sue us, please, and then just hand it off to their attorney at the time, Henry Wykowski, uh, to go fight. And back in the early days, Henry had a pretty impressive track record uh, helping the D'Angelos move marijuana forward, which benefited all of us. Um but I think it would be a great thing to do. Um, I, I, certainly it depends on the state. And I love your suggestion of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey, because those are all states that almost naturally work together already anyway, in terms of the way business circulates among the three of them. Um, and it's much more preferable than, say, trying to go from somewhere to Idaho and having to put up with the, you know, the local attitudes that you're going to get in a place like that, where I wouldn't worry about the federal government. I would just really worry the hell about the state government. So clearly would have to go into a state that has a, already has a program, but why not? You know, um, you know, and you're right. If it's contiguous, then you lose the idea of having to transport yeah, it. Look, and I'll go a step further than that. And I'll, I'll tell you something as an anecdote that I don't think I've shared with you from Chicago last week, which is I met with a couple CBD companies that are now actually migrating into uh, to THC Delta 9 sales and D THC Delta 10 and THC Delta 8, where they're taking you know hemp-derived CBD and then they're putting it through a, a conversion process, which we all know exists. And uh, you know, and a lot of people are doing it and putting this you know these products into bodegas in states like Texas or Alabama, where you know it, it was questionable whether or not they had the ability to do that with the Farm Bill as their um, as their shield. But now they're actually going straight straight after Delta 9. Like it's no longer D8 or D10. It is Delta 9. And I met with someone um, at the show and asked her about it. She was a CFO of one of these companies. And I said, okay, look, you know, I'm a firm believer that the DA got, DEA got this one wrong when they did the interim final ruling in 2020. And I wrote a you know, white paper about it, which um, you know, was up on my LinkedIn profile. And uh, which, by the way, I, I met a couple people at the conference that said they read the thing and it was it, like influential on how they made a determination of, of how they're going to handle their business. But the belief that I've always put forward, and you and I talked about this just as friends and, and sort of legal scholars, of, you know, did the Farm Bill legalize all cannabinoids? And my contention is, is it did. The language is clear. There, the, you know, I don't care what congressional intent is, what congressional writing is, though it's in the four corners of the Farm Bill, was very, very clear that they had legalized all cannabinoids. And even Scott Gottlieb, who at the time was the, uh, the FDA chair, came out and said, you knuckleheads, do you know what you just did? You just legalized every cannabinoid, as did several others in front of Congress. So now these companies, you know, they're actually getting legal opinions on legal letterhead from their firms 
saying, yeah, we, we believe that as long as you're processing hemp, that hemp has been certified as below 0.03% THC in a dry weight basis, that if you put out a product where the ultimate product ends up at below 0.03% THC by a dry weight basis, you're good. Now, you have to think that in a vape cart, 0.03% THC, when most of it's liquid, is a very small amount. So if you're going to these websites, and I, went to, you know, I started researching a bunch after we got back from Chicago, these guys are actively not only making it, they're sending it across state lines. And as of right now, the, the DEA is doing nothing about it. The FDA is doing nothing about it. The ATF is doing nothing about it. The USDA is doing nothing about it. So if you want to think about you know, where the lowest hanging fruit for prosecutorial uh, attention is, I would say it's certainly with those guys before it is with like legal THC state um, sanctioned businesses or state you know, licensed businesses trading with each other. You know, there's there's a lot more you know gray area um, with the, the farm bill than there is with Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey trading with one another. So if if, if those guys are cavalier enough to do it, I don't know why we're like being so um, reserved in in the way that we're thinking about moving cannabis across state lines. And if what Governor Newsom is doing right now is just opening the conversation, again, I applaud that, and I applaud you know Governor Murphy doing the same thing on the other side of New Jersey. You know, absolutely. And and the, the thing about this is, well, I mean, I look, you know, we've talked about this in the and uh, the, the overreach by the uh, DEA and not the first time that they've done this. And I know you've written on it. Bob Hoban has done some stuff on it. Uh, a number of people have out there. And, uh, uh, you know, the bottom line is I, I don't think you have to be a legal genius to read the language of the farm bill. You're right. This is about as plain language as it gets. It says that all of its constituent cannabinoids are legal. They're no well. It says they're no longer controlled substances, which is the same thing as saying they're legal. So all derivatives, all salts, all isomers, everything that's associated with it, as long as as long as the crop came down and tested out by dry weight basis as the crop at below 0.03 percent, then it's called hemp, and everything that follows it is legal. Everything you can't you can't decriminalize and take it off the CSA. Only to say, oh, well, now it's back on because you did X, Y, and Z. Well, if you wanted to say that, then that's what the language of the law should have said. It is, it will remain, you know, hemp unless you do this, this, or this, at which point you are now, you know, going back into the CSA. That's not what the farm bill says. It does not. So it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It is very, very clear. And, you know, it, it's it's um, so clear that you're right, that that the, that the people in government clearly didn't understand what they were doing at the time. And I would have no problem, you know, counseling a client and saying, you know, if, if the THC level in the final product itself, even if it's Delta 9, is 0.3% or less, for sure you're, you're home free. Um, if, if it goes above 0.3% or less, I guess you run into a problem because at that point you do qualify as marijuana. And if you're in a state that legislates marijuana, you know, and says you can only sell marijuana in the state if you have a license to do so, you know, technically then you might run into a problem. But again, that's a state issue. That's not a federal issue. And the question is going to be, you know, at some point, how much of the state's going to really care about this? You know, I mean, states like California and Oklahoma and Colorado and Washington that are so big, you know, I mean, I could see states like Illinois where they're really trying to keep an iron fisted control over things. You know, I don't know. At the end of the day, it seems to me that they put themselves in a corner and they haven't had the either the wherewithal or the, the, the balls to go back and try and you know correct it the way they want to. I, honestly, I think it's more than that, and I don't mean to uh, to throw some shade at the uh, the legislators, but I don't think the guys in Congress are smart enough to, to understand the issue. And I don't mean that it, you know I don't think they're they're intellectually smart enough. I, all of them, you know, there's a lot of really bright people in Congress, but this isn't what they're focused on. You know, they're focused on a ton of other things. You know, when you think about trying to explain to them what happens through a um, a, a distillation process, like a uh, a falling film distillation or a spinning band distillation, and how you take you know a crude oil extraction with a CO two process, and then you know come out with something that has uh, a certain percentage of THC, and then further refine that into an isolate or a distillate, this is so far over their heads unless they actually really took the time to spend hours and hours and hours with someone in the industry, and then even then, you know, you, you talk about. Uh, the final product. I mean, if you talk about like just a, a gummy, a gummy might weigh two or three grams. Well, if you're thinking about by dry weight basis, that means if it's one gram, you've got up to 30 milligrams that you can put in there to stay at, at you know, actually 300 milligrams that you can put in there to stay at 0.03% by dry weight basis. You're never going to make a 300 milligram gummy, you know, so any, anything like 10 milligrams or under, you, like, it's, it's not even close. But that was never what they were thinking about because at the time, Congress was like, okay, so you're telling me someone can smoke this stuff all day long and they wouldn't get high? And everyone's like, yeah. They're like, okay, that's good enough for us. 
that was what the thresholds 0.03% was all about. They were never thinking about extraction and conversion because at the time it's like they, very few people even thought that that was a possibility if you weren't, you know, really involved in the industry and you're already working on extraction. So it's a, it's a very technical question that I don't think they've got the ability to go back and rewrite the law unless they were to hire a coal people inside the industry to, to say, okay, really explain it to us, you know, write it in succinct, plain English, and then, you know, we'll go back to the floor and try to amend this. But as it stands right now, the farm bill holds and the farm bill is clear in its language. I don't disagree. I mean, but I, and I don't disagree with what you say about uh, the members of the legislature, because I think that's probably look, people say the same thing about litigators. We don't know anything. We just learn what we need to learn to go litigate our case. I can be an expert in something for three weeks to talk in front of a judge. But here's the thing. If you say to them, look, here's what no understanding marijuana can give you money and votes. There, I can't think of anything else that motivates politicians more. And I'm hoping that at some point there are going to be politicians who are going to be willing to say to their chief of staff, go get me a guy who's going to come in and be my marijuana expert and let's start looking into this thing. And, you know, I mean, we all know the states that are the most obvious candidates for that. And some of those states already have legislators that are willing to do that. But I think it's it's we're going to reach a point where marijuana is going to demand people's attention and you can't keep pushing it off, you know, while we sit there and, you know, fart around about whether we should turn into a Christian nation or not. Thanks to whoever just spouted that. Not Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody was yelling today. We should all be. A, I'm like, that's what really you got a billion dollar marijuana industry out there that nobody's focusing on. And this is what you want to talk about. That's, you know, that's the part that drives me crazy is, you know, setting aside for a minute how ridiculous the idea is, just the fact that they're wasting people's time talking about things other than relevant issues like this one is 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 frustrating. We need to be at a point where people make this a priority and people want to talk about the marijuana industry because they see the, the good that it brings to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is probably of all the shows we've done recently, Larry, and we've, we've talked about how the industry is having issues, you know, internally from a business standpoint. But it's rare you and I get, uh, you know, really deep into uh, to legislation and into policy. And uh, this has been a fun one to do it on. So we've had some great things to cover this week to, to decide or to at least pontificate uh, about. And, uh, you know, sometimes, as I said, sometimes we're more about the music and sometimes we're more about the, uh, the cannabis. And this week, I think we've done a nice job of balancing the both and hopefully we haven't nerded out so hard <laughs> that people say I don't want to listen to this crap anymore but you know these are issues that I'd love to dig into and I know you do too no I I, I really do and you know we don't have time to dive back into it today but I, I just leave it with this overarching question of you know people have to be careful what they wish for right because if the borders are eventually open and California can't start importing all over the place who knows we'll see Going back to our friends at uh, the Warfield Theater 42 years ago today, uh, we're ready to spin our third tune, uh, excuse me, fourth tune, thanks, but this next one uh, was always, always, always one of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead tunes to hear in concert. It's an amazing tune. It's beautiful every time you hear it. It, it's, it's It's an electric tune, except when it's not, so let's listen to what it sounds like. breakout of the night, the first time played uh, since May 8th, 1979, a mere 99 shows ago compared to uh, uh, On the Road Again, but uh, what a beautiful tune, um, originally off of Mars Hotel, uh, something I did not know originally titled The Suicide Song, which I guess if you listen to the lyrics kind of makes a little bit of sense, but it's kind of a harsh name for any tune played by the Grateful Dead, and I love China Doll a lot better. Yeah, I mean, that, that song, 
I think there's certain songs that are meant to be played acoustic, and I always think about that song and you know think that it was born for Tom Constantin, you know, the kind of having that harpsichordy uh, sound to it as well, or even a um, <clears throat> like a hurdy gurdy sound uh, as well. But the one thing I'll say about it is, as an acoustic song, I always thought it was just, just perfect, which is why when the Dead started, or I should say when Garcia started playing the Stephen Cripe Lightning Bolt guitar. In the early 90s, which a lot of people, as I said, you know, we talked about this a couple shows ago, a lot of people complained that too much of an acoustic quality to it. One of the songs I thought that really, really benefited um, from that sound was China Doll. And if you listen to, you know, I've talked about it before, the Fall of 93 China Dolls, they're exceptional because they have that sort of glockenspiel slash, you know, acoustic tinny sound to it that resonates so beautifully with China Doll. So, you know, if, if you're going to go back and listen to them, you know, I think the acoustics and, uh, and anything that was played with the, uh, with the Kripe Lightning Bolt guitar are two great places. You know, obviously knowing that they played amazing versions all the way through the 70s and 80s as well. But there's a certain sound to it that I specifically like more than others. And it's really that sort of high end tinny sound on a China doll. Absolutely. Uh, what a great tune. And the harpsichord is, is always so distinctive when you're sitting there. Sometimes they'll play it out of space. Sometimes they'll play it going into space. Sometimes they'll play it anywhere around there. But as they slide into it, the minute you hear that harpsichord note, you know exactly what they're playing. And it's always a welcome song, very identifiable. And uh, we may have discussed it on the show, but it's our, our good buddy, One-Armed Larry's, uh, one of his major claims to fame is at the 1984 uh, dead shows at the Philly Civic Center. He was up in the men's third floor restroom as the dead broke into China Doll, and he called it, and the guy in the next uh, uh, trough over was very impressed at his uh, acumen, even while taking a leak upstairs. So uh, hats off to One-Arm Larry, and it's a great uh, a great tune and, and always fun to hear. Yeah. And as you know, is the only uh, thing I ever got to ask Garcia directly was, when are you going to play China Doll in the summer of 95 when I met him? So it was a... Uh, you know, which, by the way, they did not play a China Doll uh, that entire final tour, which was a, a great disappointment to me. But that was the one slow second set Jerry tune that, you know, we got lots of so many roads and lots of standing on the moons and morning dews and Stella Blues, but there was no China Doll. Uh, so that's one that, you know, kind of kind of eluded me in the uh, towards the end. I hear you. You know, there, there's always one or two that we just can't uh, you can't quite ever catch up with. Switching to musical news for a moment, our good buddy Phil Lesh has finally announced his list of friends who will be playing with him this year out for the Philoween, his nine-night run uh, his, that's now become an annual tradition for him out at the uh, Capitol Theater in Port Chester. You know, I had made it out there last year for my uh, initial experience at the Capitol. I know your, your boyhood home, and uh, it was wonderful. Unfortunately, I will not make it out there this year, although this will come as no surprise to you. Uh, my good friends Alex and Andy will be there on the 29th, and I'm sure after that maybe we can get Alex on the show and uh, you can meet him and he can give us a breakdown of uh, Phil jamming in the Capitol Theater. Uh, yes, the, uh, the Bob Sacramento of our show. Um, <laughs> I still look forward to it. But dude, have you seen the lineup, man? There, there's so many great musicians. Like the first weekend's Krasno and Schofield and Carl D is playing with them. Like the, 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 when you think about these lineups he's putting together, and he's got Jennifer Hartswick. Yeah, oh, he's got Ivan Neville from uh, you know formerly of Dumpster Funk playing with him, and he's got you know Jen Hartswick playing. He's got you know the guitarist from Goose playing with him. Like it's like he is just curating so many great lineups, and I know there's certain ones you're partial to, uh, but. You know, you look at what's actually being put together for this, and uh, it, it it's pretty impressive, man. Like, it looks like Krasno's going to play with them a lot, but John Molo and Natalie Cressman, John Medeski uh, are playing on the second weekend. I mean, look, this is this is going to be good stuff, man. Like, there's no no reason why, you know, if I could make it out there, that I shouldn't try to go out at least for a night or two the way you did last year. Um, but, you know, very likely I won't be able to. But, man, what a what a lineup you just announced. No, the lineup is is nice, and you're right. I'm, I've always been partial to the original quintet, but setting that aside, because the guys in the quintet all have their day jobs and they're all doing very well doing it, these are this is an amazing group of musicians that he's put together. Uh, it is exciting. I I know Jennifer Hartswick because it wasn't just last week we were talking about horns and fish tunes, and wasn't she the one who did a Susie Greenberg with them and blew the trumpet? She wasn't the initial one to do it. That was initially um, Carl Gearshart and Dave the Truth Grippo and uh, and uh, Russell Remington. But, you know, since then, Jennifer's done, you know, I mean, obviously everything with, with Trey Band. But at this point, I'd be, I'm pretty sure she played Susie Greenberg uh, on that New Year's Eve when they kicked in the new year with the Susie about five or six years ago. I think she was part of that lineup. She's definitely played on Susie since. But the original Giant Country Horns was really who, who wrote the, um, the horn part for that. Okay. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it is a great lineup. And, you know, 
we've often talked about the various cover tunes that the Grateful Dead played or some of their spoken influences that helped influence us in terms of uh, being exposed to other music and other uh, genres and things like that. And, and all Phil is doing here is bringing that same gift back to us by surrounding himself with so many amazing musicians that people are bound to walk out of there saying, you know, I, I've got to go listen to Natalie Crestman now. I've got to go listen to James Casey. I've got to go listen to any of these people um, because they were, and, 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 you know, He's doing them a favor. He's doing himself a favor. It, it's just so wonderful uh, that they all come together like that. And really, if you think about it, you know, and, and we, we mentioned, uh, you mentioned the uh, Capitol Theater earlier uh, as the show where they uh, had originally broken out for the first time, uh, the Birdsong. And the Capitol Theater has always been uh, home to many magical moments for the Grateful Dead and uh, Phil clearly living off of those, living off of those vibes and uh, bringing other musicians in so they can do it too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about that whole run, we, we covered it before, but I think they broke out seven or eight new tunes in that February 1971 run, including Loser, including Deal, including Birdsong. I think uh, potentially Warfrat, I think, was in there as well. But there was, there was a handful of, uh, of breakouts for the first time that you know, the Dead decided that was the venue they wanted to, uh, to drop these on for the first time. Uh, and it's remained, you know, the, the bar next door is called Garcia's, and it's owned by, uh, by Pete Shapiro, who, you know, the guy that puts together more Grateful Dead-related stuff between Lock and Festival and Fairly Well. Uh, Phil loves that venue. Phil, just, I mean, if he's going to play anywhere, the only places he really wants to play anymore for a long time was either Terrapin Crossroads or was uh, The Cap. And now Terrapin's closed down. It's it's the cap. You know that's that's where we're gonna get. You know Phil Lesh at age 80, uh, 82 years old now, uh, still playing music. So hats off to, to Phil for doing that. And, I mean I gotta say that I was super excited. And I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy his name, but uh, Rick uh, Mitaratanda, I think it is from uh, from Goose. He's gotta be so fired up. To, I mean that for him that's his hometown venue. That's where he grew up. You know that's twenty minutes away from uh, from his hometown. So for sure, as a kid, he was seeing Capitol Theater shows. It's got to be like, what a what a celebration! Like what a prodigal son, you know, kind of like moment when you get to go back to the cap and play with Phil Lesh. You know, it's uh, like I don't think he's ever gotten a chance to play with Phil before, and you know, he's certainly gotten a chance now to play with Trey. But you know, you want to talk about a person that's like the only person hotter in music right now is maybe Billy Strings than uh, than Rick is on guitar. So it's pretty pretty amazing to see this happening. It is, and and and. What you know? What more beautiful way to kind of like show that bridge? I mean, here's Phil Lesh, the granddaddy of all of this, and he's sharing a stage with the guy who is, you know, as you say, the lead guitar player for one of the, if not the hottest up and coming jam bands, in you know, in the country right now. And and you know, the fact that at Phil, you know, at his age, is 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 so much so interested in reaching out to so many of these younger musicians. We've seen Trey do it, of course, all the time. We know he's going to be touring with Goose, and uh, and and he's been. Uh, you can go on YouTube and see all sorts of uh, of walk-in moments with him with them, uh, but I, I love it when uh, when when Phil Lesh does something like this, you know, and, and he's he he's sending a message to all of these deadheads. Not that they necessarily need it, and, and certainly not that Rick needs this, uh, you know, this type of uh, affirmation. But uh, boy, there's probably not very many jam band guitarists or, or musicians out there today that would turn down an opportunity to share a stage with Phil Lesh for a few minutes. Yeah, I mean, look, I think everyone knows that this isn't lasting forever, and to get a chance to play with one of the all-time legends, and, and a guy that, you know, the rest, of the, the rest of the members of the Dead, and I love what they're doing with Dead and Company, but they're all still sticking to what they've always done, whereas Phil has really branched out and said, I just want to play with, you know, some really unique and cool musicians. And the fact that, you know, ever since Phil and Friends started, it was always a rotating cast of characters, and, you know, you had some guys that stuck around longer than others, but, you know, Phil is really... Um, really gone out there and tried to do something unique the way that for a while government mule did as well in the early days of just playing with different people and you know trying different lineups but you know phil always finds a way to make it work and he always curates just really really cool bands of guys that love to play grateful dead music and i love the fact that at his age he's so in tune with all of this young hot music you know he knows these guys he knows what they're playing you know to the point where he's he's interested in playing with them and you know you, you have to be you have to be that fluent in the world. You can't just rest on, my kids tell me this all the time, you can't just listen to the Grateful Dead or even now the Dead and Fish anymore. There's all this other music. And, 
you know, not that I hadn't recognized it before, but Sacred Rose was really a great way to kind of, you know, immerse myself. Now we've got uh, Widespread Panic coming up to do their annual Milwaukee run that I'm going to try and get up to. Umphreys is coming to play up here on the north side of Chicago in a month or two. Going to try and get myself out to see some of those shows. And, um, you know, kind of brings the fun back to music a little bit. You know, you get to see new, exciting bands, some of them really young and just getting started. Some of them more established, but, you know, all of them, you know, really kind of, you know, in the prime and, and going strong. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, you know, I'll say that sometimes musicians, it's great for them to play with other musicians to um, to stay in tune the way that, you know, Phil's done. And honestly, Billy has done with Billy and the kids as well. But then there's the other side of it, which is musicians uh, decide that they want to cover certain band songs. And, you know, there's there's certain Grateful Dead songs, one in particular, I think we're going to close the show with, and I don't want to steal the thunder from you on this one that probably has been covered more by other bands than almost any other song I can think of. And it's already made its way into the Library of Congress as kind of an American treasure. Uh, it's certainly sung at, you know, camps around the country um, every summer as, you know, the fire's kind of dimming out. And of all the Grateful Dead songs, I think will be, you know, looked at 100 years from now, 200 years from now, and still have longevity. You know, I think the one we're going to close with is it, uh, despite the fact that, you know, there, there may be some other songs that, that I like more to, uh, to dance to or to, you know, sort of get a groove on. From a pure musical standpoint, I think the one that's like had the, the greatest impact on other musicians is probably the one that we're going to close with today. So, you know, before we do, uh, I'll sign off and say thanks for another great show and for putting this one together, Larry, and I uh, look forward to doing it again next week. But uh, a lot of fun, as, as always. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, those of you who haven't figured out yet that we're going to play Ripple, will say what we're going to play because it is is a great tune. And, you know, when you, when you look at the Grateful Dead catalog of songs, it's hard to find a tune that I think combines uh, really just the best of Robert Hunter's lyrics and the best of Jerry Garcia's musical tunes and, and, and composition that he puts together. And the marriage of the two is, is made for one another. It's, it's really like it's written by one person. And, and maybe that's how closely linked they were at that time uh, when, when Ripple was originally uh, created. Um, you know, we, we've all talked about the last time they played at Electric in 88 uh, as a second encore uh, for a Make-A-Wish Foundation grant. Uh, and then it was never played after that because they didn't have any more acoustic shows. It was it was a staple at acoustic shows, but electric, you know, unless you caught it uh, at that Cap Center show or, you know, the one or two other few times before that they had played at electric, uh, you would never get to. So, <coughs> Garcia Band, Garcia Grace. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Thank you, the Garcia Band. Yes, I acknowledge that too. But, you know, it would be like seeing. Well, never mind. It, 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 it's a great tune. I'd be happy to see Garcia play it anywhere, anytime. But but this is acoustic, and, and this is the way I think the song was originally written, was written. Of the, many other tunes could go both ways. I like to think of a song like Friend of the Devil, Ripple, that these were traditional acoustic tunes that he later gave electric life to. And uh, so we'll, we'll listen to this final Ripple, which was the first set closer of the show. They then came back and did a traditional two-set uh, two electric show. Uh, so people really got their money's worth at these outings. But listen to this Ripple Enjoy it. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, be good, have fun, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. That was not made by the hands of men. There is a road, no simple highway between the dawn.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.